Welcome to the Fargo Podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Fargo on FX. I'm Jim. And I'm Aaron. And tonight we're covering episode two, titled The Rooster Prince. Before we get into any kind of real discussion of the episode in detail, just kind of wanted to get your general thoughts. Uh, how does it stack up to episode one? You know, I actually found myself really enjoying it. Um, I'm really kind of getting into the humor of the show. I like the fact that they've really expanded <laughs> the universe because I was a little concerned from the first episode if they would have enough material to kind of you know keep me interested in the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first experience with FX anthologies was this year's uh, American Horror Story, and I thought that plot was a little thin the stretching it across a whole season and I was kind of scared about the same thing, but I feel like this universe is filling out nicely and I am no longer concerned. How about you? Hmm. Okay. I haven't seen American horror story, so I can't really, uh, don't have much to compare this to as far as, uh, the type of show that it is. Right. Um, but I, I was a little worried about something else. Honestly, you said you're really enjoying the quirky, funny aspects of it. They are walking, a very very thin tightrope with me. Uh, really? I feel like some of the characters are starting to be a little too quirky, uh, and we can talk about that here in a little bit. Okay. Uh, although I am enjoying most of just the plain humor that they've got in there. Okay. So they they haven't crossed any lines yet, and I'm still really enjoying it. It's just I'm I see where if they took this one notch up, I would probably be turned off. All right. Let's hope they stay one notch below, Jim. <laughs> okay. Let's. Uh, what do you want to start talking about with this episode? I mean, it kind of opens up with a couple of new assassins. Do we want to talk about them? I think it's a good place to start, sure. Okay. So, like I said, it opens up with them. It opened up with our original assassin, Billy Bob Thornton, in the first episode. Do you think we could see a series of assassins set up in the beginning of episodes until the final episode where we see... Lester set up at the beginning, and he's finally caught because he's mm. our our sloppy assassin. I don't think I don't think the show could bear that many <laughs> assassins running around. I agree. I agree. <laughs> so, what what did you think about these guys? You got one guy who doesn't talk. Yeah, the deaf guy who I surmise is named Wrench, mm-hmm. and the other guy whose name is numbers uh i i don't know man like the idea of a deaf hitman assassin that's wearing like a dookie brown leather jacket with crazy fringe Uh is a good one i like that i like i I think that you know if i don't if you're an assassin it seems like you'd want to be as nondescript as possible right sure so it's interesting to me it seems like every time you see a dyed in a wool assassin uh, going all the way back to Luca Brasi in Godfather, it's like these guys walk into a bar and everyone is going to turn their head and look at them mm-hmm. and be like, what the fuck? So <laughs> that stretches my kind of credi- cred- credulity. Sure. But. On the other hand, it's really cool, unique look, and they're kind of menacing in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like I, I don't know why, but something about the man being deaf makes him kind of disarming. 
or you're paying more attention to the fact that he's talking through his hands than you are considering mm-hmm. him the, the serious threat. Sure. Okay. Uh, That's interesting way to look at it. Did you catch that they're actually from Fargo? Uh, no. I. Oh, oh, you mean the city. I thought you meant the movie. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. They're from the city, Fargo. Yeah, yeah. I got that. And so apparently Hess is involved with some kind of big, uh, I guess, North Midwest mafia that's based out of Fargo, North Dakota. Yeah. <laughs> this is super weird because they talk about the business and then they say something like, uh, you know, you got um, Max who comes in, or I thought he was called Bruce last episode, but I guess he's Max, uh, Max Gold. He comes mm-hmm. in and he says, like, there's no labor BS, there's no skirmishes with other trucking concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, he makes it sound like, and, and later on, Bill, the the new chief of police there, says it's not like it's a cutthroat world of regional trucking, um, where he references the cutthroat world of regional trucking. It's like they're building up regional trucking to be this really sophisticated, almost like criminal empire <laughs> that they're running. Well, you know, it kind of makes sense, though, right? Like, it seems like being a, a gangster in North and South Dakota and Minnesota would be an extraordinarily good idea because you're not – you know, it's like you're away from the East Coast. You're away from the West Coast. I guess you got Chicago uh, that you have to worry about competing. But there's a whole lot of nothing. But there's still a lot of, especially nowadays, um, you know, there's a lot of fracking and refinery action and shipping. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it might not be a very big pie, but you're probably not splitting it into a lot of pieces either. Yeah, that's true. It, it's just weird to me the way that they're setting it up it feels like trucking is the product it's not like they're running drugs it's not like they're in like prostitution or anything nothing illicit it's just they're killing people over this legal business of trucking oh see i assumed that there's also quite a bit of graft and you know Uh there's got to be some some illegal stuff if it's a purely there's there's (laughs) no way i mean that's the whole idea black market can't spring up around the truly legal product Sure, yeah. Uh, you can have a gray market around a taxed product, but if it's just a truly legal product, there's no room for gangsters to move in because you can just – if someone f- fucking tries to roll up and gangster on you, you call the cops, and the cops come and drive, <laughs> and, and, and and arrest them. Yeah, It's absolutely. when you start, start breaking the law that you know shit like this starts happening. Yeah, they just haven't told us what that element is yet, and, I, and so I don't know what's going on here. Right. Uh, it also appears that groceries are a violent cutthroat world as well, uh, given the nature of the guy who's running the the grocery chain that I can't think of the name of. I think it's like this King's Groceries or something like that. The, he's the grocery king, and his logo is just a giant king. <laughs> okay, like the Burger King, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, anyway, so... Do you want to talk any more about those assassins? Maybe some of the stuff that they do during this episode that you liked or didn't like or whatever? So, the first of all, what is the odds that there is a dead ringer Billy Bob Thornton lookalike in Bemenji, who's also the kind of asshole who (laughs) would carry a knife and threaten two weird out-of-town dudes and who also has a head injury? Is sure. is that 
Was that a coincidence too far for you? Uh, nearly, nearly. And it, and it bled into kind of the comical stuff that they were going for that almost didn't work for me as well. Right. Yeah, um, I just I was like, wow, I I'm uh and and if if they had actually been like case closed and that had been a a plot device that would put them off the trail of the real uh Lord Malvo, <laughs> I I might have been okay, it's time to be it's time to rethink our podcast here. But sure, sure. The, by the by the you know, as soon as the Mr. Gold laid eyes on him, he's like, "Yep, yeah, you got the wrong guy." Mm-hmm. And uh, it led to the chilling scene of them drilling a hole in the ice and dropping uh-huh. this dude head first, handcuffed down. I gotta say, Jim, that's like one of my worst nightmares. That seems that, like a awful way to die. I completely agree, and I couldn't, I could hardly stand to watch that scene. It was, I mean, so terrifying. It's, it's like something about going head first too, so you know, like. <laughs> You're not going to like be able to hold your breath and slowly black out. You're going to be choking and gagging from the from the first moment, and you're hitting this water. And it's near freezing. It's just oh, it's a shit show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's you're going to be dunked in head first, and like you said, it's disorienting, right? It's not like you can yeah. swim back up through that hole because now you're upside down. You got to find your bearings, and by then you're swept away. Oh, and you're and and yeah, you're bound head hand and foot. Uh, at any yeah. rate, and you also are just recovering from getting slugged in the head, uh-huh. and that was something I, I found appropriately chilling too. The fact that the guy hadn't fully come to, but just come to enough to be like start begging for his life, and then it's over. Yeah, they're yeah, not going to find they're going to they're, they're not going to find him till May. <laughs> exactly, and like you said, case closed on that, right? I mean, it, it wasn't case closed for Billy Bob Thornton; it's case closed for. This guy, like that, doesn't go anywhere for months. Oh no, yeah, and you know, by the time it's it's like, uh, how do you even begin to investigate something like that? Exactly. You know, he's got so many people to want him dead, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's it's I don't know. Like I said, these guys uh, certainly not the last we've seen of them. Correct. Sure. Yeah, I agree. Um, we also haven't seen the last of Lorne, who uh, is played by Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, just delivering a tremendous performance in this episode, in my opinion. I mean, I thought the car scene in the first episode with Colin Hanks was really good. I think he blew that out of the water with the mailman here, uh, or the postal worker, and also him taking his shit was maybe one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. It was, yeah, I mean, the dude took a threatening shit. (laughs) There's a couple things like that I just get sheer delight when I see things on television I've never seen before. Or I see things in the movies I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he did this to the Cementco guy was yep. – it, it was brilliant. And then like the guy, he's like – didn't deter the guy's rhetoric. So he reached behind him and started reading his boss's book. <laughs> yeah, it's like this is what I think of your idea. Of, of mm-hmm. the things you're saying to me, I'm gonna take a shit while you're saying them. Uh, and then I really love that when Pimento or whatever his name walks out the front door, he leaves it open, so that now anybody walking down the hall is gonna see that scene. And that just that mental image of someone walking past that doorway is hilarious to me as well. Yeah, because and the thing is that Malvo didn't care. Like he's just gonna sit there <laughs> and finish his business when when he finishes his business. Yep. I wonder it's it's funny though because 
I, I wonder, like, was there any discussion about, you know, uh, we we the, the the toilet in the American household has seen a lot of action in serious dramas of late. We had <laughs> okay. Dean Norris. We had Dean yep. Norris taking his, uh, you know, shit Don't of realization spoil here, but yeah. No, no. He takes he takes a relative or, uh, a a a rele- uh, revelation of a shit. Yep. He receives divine wisdom. It was so powerful, but silent. Silent as a tomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton here squats. You barely hear some splashing water. <laughs> these these logs are sliding out between these these <laughs> cheeks like butter through a silk handkerchief man oh my god <laughs> it's it's do you think that this is so the are result? your analogies i gotta say <laughs> <laughs> well i pride myself on them uh do you think that this is uh due entirely to um network censorship or i guess cable censorship that's like okay you can show a man pull his pants down and take a shit in front of us but you uh-huh. can't make you, – you can't include fart and shit noises. Now, obviously, you can include <laughs> fart noises and shit noises because they do that in sitcoms all the time. But they don't sure. show the guys squatting there. Is there like some kind of combination uh, that you just can't put it together? I don't know because I know for a fact that they've showed Dumb and Dumber on the screen, and there's a lot of that in there. Hmm. I wonder, though, if they, if they bleep like the shit powers. noises. Yeah, I, I wonder how they handle that though. It's like, is it like one of those things where it's like you can say God and you can say damn, but you can't say God damn without bleeping one or the other? Oh, could be, could be. Um. So anyway, I think we've discussed enough about the <laughs> the shits on television. Um. Uh-huh. It, so it seems like that this mystery here of the blackmail letter is solved pretty neatly. I mean, we mm-hmm. see the. Uh, the the tanning stuff on the guy's hand, and then we see that Billy Bob make that connection. Um, do you have do you, do you have any idea what the the amount forty three thousand six hundred thirteen dollars? What that precise amount is? Is that a clue? Like what you the know, hell could that be? It would Especially, be funny if it was literally just his school loans, and the guy had guessed it right. Huh. Uh, I, I'm not sure though, because it seems like he's kind of hooked up with. Um, the king's ex-wife and she's probably going to get a lot of money from this divorce settlement that's the thing you would need 46 grand right that's the thing i wonder if this is him because i don't think the wife is involved at all what if you're getting half of a major midwestern grocery empire which okay that's like an empire with the lowercase e yeah that's still probably more money than you your children and your children's children need and their mm-hmm. lifetimes. So what I, it to me it's this I I suspect the trainer who's played yep. by um uh, what's the Glenn guy Howerton. Yeah, but it, but he's uh on uh, Always Sunny his what what's his character in Always Sunny? Dennis. Yeah, Dennis. Um I, and and I don't know that it's that he's totally behind this too. I feel like it's some unwhole. I feel like it's him and his his son, the the mm-hmm. the the um, the grocery store king's son, because he seems yeah. like such a simple minded idiot. And this forty three thousand six hundred thirteen dollars seems to be the work of simple minded idiots. Idiots. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you there. Uh, the the kid is one of the problems I had with this episode. I thought when he busted in and told the joke and nobody laughed and he left 
that was kind of pointless, in my opinion. Now, if he comes back and he does something like, maybe he bursts in at another inopportune moment, uh, this time really, really inopportune, with mm-hmm. the joke that Billy Bob told him later on, mm-hmm. maybe that's a good enough setup for him to come back and me to like him later. But as he stood in this episode, I thought it was completely pointless, and I didn't enjoy him at all. All right. Uh, fair enough. What do you think about Lorne's penchant for listening to Lester's phone call? And it looked like he had – Did it? was it just me, or did it look like he had, like, a case full of tapes? Yeah, yeah. That might be similar. Mm-hmm. Like, what is what the hell is he doing with this? Is this – stroke material is this <laughs> is is he going to use this because uh, i wonder the same thing he asked for the king's books uh signing mm-hmm. like does he just collect all this weird bric-a-brac that he then uses in his various scams like does he piece together huh. pieces of these phone calls to make you know to to, to uh, there's got to be some purpose to him collecting these tokens of hu- human misery like yeah, he he amasses this stuff to use on the next game. Maybe that, maybe that. I kind of got the impression that it was more like insurance. The way he's kind of listening to it and making sure that he like has the dirt on Lester. Oh, he's collecting um, favors. That's what I think. Yeah, because Lester, you know, he's in a position where he can't deny if he's got a request to do something. It's kind of almost Godfathering. You know, yeah, one day yeah. and that day might never come. I'm going to ask, call upon you to do me a favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if uh, Lauren ever gets caught and it uh, has anything to do with Lester, he's going to pull out that tape. So Lester hmm. can't turn him in. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so, I don't know. That may be what I he's won- doing. I wonder, so that means, leads me a big question. That makes sense why he sets people up to do stupid things. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Um, on the other hand, I wonder how he makes the decision between the guys that he wants to actually reel in, like he does with uh, Lester here, and the guys he's just going to cut loose for his own amusement, like the kid that pissed in the gas tank. Was it the fact that that kid doesn't seem like he could ever do anything to help him out? Well, I would say yes, but Lester also didn't seem like it, did he? Yeah, and and how would he how would he he had no evidence that that guy that until Lester called him because he murdered his wife, he probably mm-hmm. didn't have a phone call of their conversation about, or maybe he did. Maybe he was recording their conversation in the hospital. Huh? Maybe, maybe he was recording a conversation at the diner. Yeah. But, uh, it just seems like that's a pretty big hail Mary. If that was like, you know, a direct cause and effect thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They certainly never even implied that. So, yeah, I'm definitely uh, looking, I'm kind of, I'm I'm kind of on the on the the I, I'm kind of a little on the fence about how I feel about this particular behavior of him because it just seems like, you know, it's got something he's going to have to carry and set up at every freaking hotel just on the <laughs> off chance that someone's going to call and do some incriminating stuff. Uh-huh. Like I guess this guy doesn't seem like he has much of a life other than going around and causing, you know, chaos. So maybe if you that that's your profession. Uh, that's that's what you do for a hobby. I don't know. But wait it seems... a second. Wait a second. What if he's going out there? He's collecting these tapes and he's bringing them back to his headquarters to then use as blackmail against these people. Oh, so there's this blackmail connection. 
yeah, there's a blackmail ring going on, and he's kind of out there stirring up shit, getting people in trouble, uh, bailing them out, and then using that to to get money, to get power, whatever he's doing. Hmm, interesting. I don't know, just a theory. We have no idea, really. Well, I mean, that's kind of like the, you know, the ransom slash blackmail plot of Fargo, and uh-huh. how that eventually gets inverted... I could see some of that going on here that like, you know, he's, you know, maybe he's actually run a little bit of this on the side. Um, hmm. You know, I wonder if he, I, it, it's, there's so many different ways this direction could go. I mean, he could end up, uh, if there, if there's solid blackmail to be had, maybe he ends up, uh, you know, cause that's all that's in temptation. If you, if you're calling an expert to a criminal expert to help you get out of a blackmail situation, and you actually have a good deal of money. What is to keep the criminal from just deciding, okay, well, this is a big enough juicier target. I'm blackmailing you now. Yeah. I'm yeah. straight up blackmailing you now, and I want double what this guy wanted to make it go away. And now who the hell are you going to call? Because I'm a bad <laughs> motherfucker. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a, want... a conundrum there. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole... That's, that's the thing I always get with the uh, the criminal enterprises, the fact that there is just really no... I mean, everything's loyal and dependable until the target's big enough, and then it's not. And it's mm-hmm. like there's just never any certainty or insurance. Yeah. Um, what else do we need to talk about? I want to talk one more time, and I'm sure it probably won't even be the last time, about the food in this show. Because, goddamn, they nail the food every time. Uh, the food that was at that wake is just like the perfect region-accurate, just like nondescript dishes of meatloafs and potatoes and rolls and mac and cheese just like all the blandest heaviest midwest bullshit you can eat <laughs> oh yeah it's like it's like what would happen if you know you you have a church potluck uh-huh <laughs> everyone makes terrible food brings it in gorges themselves and compliments each other on how great the terrible food is sure yeah um so yeah uh, no, okay. definitely. Let's talk about the Lester and cop interactions in this, because that's kind of where the meat of the story is, I think. Does the Lester and who? Lester and the, the officers of the law. Oh, oh, okay, cop. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Like Mo- Lester versus Molly and Bill. Yes. All right. Um, so he has told them a story that holds up because no one has noticed his hand, right? I mean, if you yes. notice his hand has been shot... His story falls to shit. Yes. Do you... The the, th- the th- interesting thing about this is it doesn't look like there's an exit wound. So I'm huh. guessing there's still a piece of shot buried in his hand. Uh-huh. And if that's the case, then you can rub all the ointment in the world on it. It's not going to go away. And so this is kind of like the uh, telltale heart from Edgar Allan Poe. You know, this is just going to get worse and worse and worse until he has to seek medical attention, and then what? Sure. Or what if he ends up going through a metal detector and they find out about it because of that? Oh, man. I, man, would <laughs> I, I wonder if they could detect one single piece of shot. Yeah, maybe um, But I thought it's interesting how, like, the, you know, new police chief Bill uh, is as big as idiot as the last guy expected or suspected – that he actually makes connections to the case that Molly's not aware of. He's she's, he's actually aiding her investigation 
while trying to put the kibosh on the whole angle of Lester's involvement. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, the guy used to beat the shit out of you all the time in school that you're pretending like you don't know. Uh-huh. Um, at what point does his obtuseness become a problem? Uh, I think it already has. I don't, I don't think that Molly is necessarily going to stop pursuing, especially with the case she's been assigned to. It links directly back to Lorne, who is also linked directly to Lester's case. Right. Um, I think she's going to come roundabout on this and find another way into the case. Uh, so I don't think the door is shut on it, but I think as effectively as he could, he shut it. I mean, he took her off the case. Sure, sure. That's all he can do as her superior, you know, or fire her, I guess. Right. Do you think, I mean, what is going to eventually remove this barrier? I mean, do you think he'll ever give up the, uh, I don't know. Do you think he'll ever give up the Lester's not involved angler? Or is is he going to take her connecting the naked guy to Lester for him to finally see sense? Hmm. Because it's, I almost got this thing like he's so stubborn about this and this is his first act of police chief that even if she had like, you know, the word of God came down mm-hmm. and said this guy did. I don't know that his ego, uh, which is completely unwarranted, would allow him to admit that he's wrong. Which makes me wonder, is Bob Odenkirk going to get killed in this show? Oh, I could surely see that. I don't Mm. see why not. (laughs) That's a lot of some dead small-town cops. Yeah, it also makes me worry about uh, Colin Hanks, who seems to be bound to get mixed up in this whole thing uh, again. Yeah, I'd be very surprised if he ends up dying. I mean, he's a single dad. Uh, He's Mm -hmm. got this daughter... That's precocious and cute and righteous, and he's also he's got this weird, this weird flirtatious uh, <laughs> deal going on with his neighbor. Yeah, which goddamn people, goddamn people, you live three feet from each other. Get some damn drapes and blinds. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to sit there and watch you eating f- food all the time and uh, <laughs> all that. Yeah, nobody wants to do that. Yeah, so what what do you make of the scenes that we saw in this episode of him, like you explained, with his daughter and the woman next door? Um, I think it's pretty straightforward when he's in the the police office that he is looking at the write-up that he did on Lauren's car, and he's thinking, oh, of he's feeling a little guilty. But then we go to these scenes that seem to be just complete mismatches to this episode, right? I mean, they're just explaining a little bit more about his life, Um I know it's all just set up, but do you think there's any anything to be mined from those scenes as, as we see them? Well, the first thing that I noticed is that he is – his job – one of his jobs is to be the backup dog catcher for the town. Did you, <laughs> yeah, catch, yeah. Did you catch that? The sure, animal yeah. control guy called in sick, so uh, you're going to have to do th- – so this guy is so far down the totem pole that he's mm-hmm. he's not the town dog catcher. He's the backup to the town dog catcher. Sure. That and I think that sheds a, lo- a little more credence to the idea that he would have backed down in episode one. Yes. I completely buy that this guy would have backed down. Um, he's obviously single. I'm going to guess he's a widower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we just, you know, because we're the lucky omniscient viewers, we, we just stumble upon the one point in his life where it's about to get so fucking interesting all at once. He's got this... <laughs> Uh, Lauren Malvo thing he's going to probably run down and investigate. He's got the hot uh, Jewish white uh, – I don't know. I mean, is she single? 
I couldn't tell, um, you know, in that in that family scene, like if there's a husband she had there. I mean, what is going on with that? How that's going to fit in? Um, you know, there's a lot of Jewish angle here uh, with. Uh, and I didn't pick up on the fact that they were Jews, except for there was this giant truck in their front yard that said it was like ra- a rabbi mobile. Did you, you said did you... rabbi mobile? No, I yeah, didn't Yeah, there that. was this big, big like RV that had like a photo of a rabbi on it, and it was kind of like <laughs> a, a, a Orthodox Jewish mobile. And it's kind of like mobile, it was mobile mitzvahs. And. Uh, okay. Yeah, all this stuff, and then the episode title, The Rooster Prince, which we'll talk about here in a minute, is a very old Jewish kind of Aesop fable. So there's a lot of, there's some kind of underlying Jewish current going on here that I don't know if it's just them being, um, you know, clever with the title or clever with the material or what, or if there's going to be some kind of importance to this uh, later on. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I... I know that it's set up, but for what, I can't be sure. And I can't even speculate at this point. There's so little information. The one thing I will say is that there was a nice arty shot of ketchup splattering on a a plate as him and his daughter sit down for their dinner of cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets that might be arguable that that's like a sign of blood, which maybe there is going to be something terrible happen to him or his family or people close to him, like said sexy Jewish neighbor. At the very least, I think he's going to find his way either to Bemidji or Bemidji's going to come to him, and this is all going to bleed <laughs> into an, one another, you know? Right on. Uh, yeah. What else do you want to talk about? Mm, well, we could play... Uh, what, what did you think of the really weird, like, beatnik tone poem at the end of the episode, which I had to look up uh, from... I, this. This old hippie dude named Eden uh, Abes is called okay. Full Moon, and it talks about a, a bunch of nonsense about the wind and the sea and the sky, and I just took it as like some cold-blooded smack delay on a murder scene. <laughs> like you've got this talk about you know how the the world is your cathedral and everyone is joined together with brotherhood and love and. You know, I'm having a ball and everything bound by law and crowned by love and we're poor and happy. And it was just it was just some weird um, off putting shtick to make the scene of this of the the murder even more chilling. Is there anything more than that? I don't think so. A lot of times the Coen brothers will use a song just to set a tone and a mood. Uh-huh. And I felt like that's what this is. Um, it's an homage to that. Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily reading too much into the meaning. And I feel like this is a show that we don't need to read too much into as far as, like, thematics go. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty straightforward. It's quirky. It's funny. Uh, and there's a plot that kind of twists and turns that you want to follow. But that's about all I care to read into it. And mm-hmm. maybe I'm missing pieces. I don't know. The Rooster Prince might be something that you want to talk about now. Because uh, I've never heard of it. All right. One one last thing before we get to that, uh, okay. Adam, as a question, where oh, how do you feel about the authenticity of Lester's grief at this point? Uh, some of it is real. Surprisingly, when he picks up that hammer and he looks at it, I don't think he's satisfied with himself. I think he's starting to feel a little bit of guilt creep in. You know, 
I don't think he's satisfied. I don't think he's feeling anything because when he like buried his head into his wife's scarf and then he sobbed, I don't know whether that's just a performance choice, but it, to me it felt like someone trying to feel something that they weren't feeling. Mm, yeah, good point. And the way he was saying, you know, my wife was such a terrific lady, it just there's a lot of um a lot of false notes in that performance and I don't know if they're just weird performance choices or if they're deliberately trying to tell us that maybe Lester has a little bit of sociopath in him, that this wasn't just a you know crime of passion. This was, uh, I know, I mean, let me, I mean, could you see a guy like Lauren Malvo being like Lester 10 years ago? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's Billy Bob Thornton, for Christ's sake. He can play... You know, he could he could definitely play the Lester role if he had to. Oh, wait. Uh, maybe I'm not clear on the question you're asking me. Ask that again. I'm saying, do you think that this the, the character of Lauren Malvo could have been some button-down, repressed dude 10 years ago, and then he finally snapped okay. and became the sociopath that we're seeing kind of on the rampage? I'm yeah, wondering yeah. if we're... This is... This is both him dicking around with Lester, and we're also getting a little bit of, like, the proto-story for Lorne. Sure, and that adds a lot of uh, resonance as to why he would even be interested in killing Sam Hess to begin with, right? Right. He hears this guy's sob story, identifies with it, and then goes out and kills a guy. Right. So, could be. Could be. All right, let's play the name game a little bit. This is courtesy of Mike Jones. I was going to look it up, but he did it for me, so I don't have to. Said okay. last week you talked about the crocodile dilemma and what the title might mean. This week it's titled The Rooster Prince. Here's what Wikipedia has to say. In this story, a prince goes insane and believes that he is a rooster. He takes off his clothes, he sits naked under the table, and pecks at the floor for food. The king and the queen are horrified that their heir is acting this way. They call in various sages and healers to try to convince the prince to act human again, but to no avail. Then a wise old man comes to the palace and claims that he can cure the prince. He takes off his clothes and sits naked under the table with him, claiming to be a rooster, too. Gradually, the <laughs> prince comes to accept him as a friend. The sage then tells this prince that a rooster can wear clothes, eat at a table, etc. The rooster huh. prince accepts this idea and step-by-step step begins to act normally until he's completely cured. Interesting. There's, there's a lot of potential rooster princes. The, I think, most, yeah. the most obvious one is the king's son, right? Uh, in what way? Because he's... Com he looks... I mean, he's... I have to explain why this odd motherfucker is a rooster to you. I mean, it's, I no, feel no, like no. it's self-evident. But but the idea of someone coming in, joining him in his uh, roosterosity, and then curing him of that in a roundabout way, I, I don't see that playing out yet. And oh. I don't know how that would play out. Um, I... I don't know. Maybe there's a, par a parallel between the uh, the idiot gym gym instructor or personal trainer. <laughs> uh huh. Uh, I also think that there's a parallel between the kid that's trapped in a where the wild things are acid trip and oh, Lester yeah. Lester moving in with them. Okay, that sure. They're both weird, broken people. That. Um, you know, either this kid's going to cure Lester of his, I don't know, <laughs> sociopathy, or maybe Lester's going to bring his sociopathy out full blown. 
Yeah, I think uh, end of next episode, there's going to be a second jar of pee in that drawer. Oh, my God, right? <laughs> uh, hey, you know, roosters can use the toilet, jackass. <laughs> um, there's also maybe uh, maybe a little bit of this is uh, the relationship between Lorne and Lester. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. That's That's where I think is the... I mean, it's less it's less obvious, but it has a more complete thematic fit. Yeah, and we assume, based on that story, that you have to go in, uh, kind of become this person with them, and then pull them out to this better place. But I don't necessarily think that is the limit of the analogy. I think you could go in as Lorne into Lester's life, free him from some, some sort of uh, bonds that he was under uh, in his own personality, and pull him out and bring him to even a worse place. And that analogy still holds up with the Rooster Prince. Yeah, you could call it the Gorilla Prince, or <laughs> or, or actually like the, the he he was a prince of gorillas, and he's become this rooster. And another gorilla comes in, he acts like a normal person, but then slowly does things like, "Hey, I'm just going to I'm going to suggest murder to you. I'm going to go ahead and act on that suggestion. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to somehow play mind games with you until you and implant this idea that you got to stand up for yourself. That's going to lead you." Yeah, I totally get that. Like, it's either in an inversion, or it's a story of his literally awakening back to his gorilla hood, whatever the fuck that means. Sure, sure. Okay, well, that's the name game. Um, got a couple of uh, quick... Uh, we don't got a lot of feedback. If you'd like to give us feedback, you can do so at Fargo at baldmove.com. Got a couple quick Facebook hits and a couple of short emails, and then we'll be done. Um First, D. D. Candlish, uh, our old old uh, pal, says, "Now I want to uh, watch. Now I want to watch Old Country for. God damn! Let me start this <laughs> over again. D. Candlish, our old friend, says, "Now I want to watch No Country for Old Man ag- Men again. The post office scene was so reminiscent of the old man in the service station. Shudder. Yeah, totally. Although." I think it's a slight disservice to No Country for Old Men to compare the scenes because the one was ten times more menacing. Sure, like, sure. I, I didn't doubt that if this, you know, post office guy played ball with Billy Bob that he'd walk out there alive. With mm-hmm. the, the the sugar character, uh, all bets were off. It came down to a coin flip. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there's a lot of similarities there. Um, Jared Turner had what I thought was a valid point and something I was going to bring up, but I didn't want to steal his thunder. He said, I don't think they need to keep banging us over the head with these little flashbacks. We're smart enough to figure things out. On my second rewatch, this really started to bother me that every single time Martin uh, or Lester rather would look at a pool of blood, that there'd be a slow motion flashback to him hitting his wife with a hammer, etc. I don't feel like we need that to understand what he's thinking and feeling. Yeah, and they did the same thing with Lorne when he realized where the bronzer on the ransom note came from, right? Right, yeah. Same. I mean, that's even a more egregious example. Yeah. Do you think this is just the filmmakers not sure that they're pitching above the, the audience's head and coming off almost offensive? or? Well, I'm trying to remember whether the movie Fargo did that, and I don't think it did. Yeah. So, yeah, it seems like when they went to television, maybe they thought, oh, well, we got to dumb this down a little bit. Maybe, but I think I, I argue that Fargo is a lot less dependent on the plot of the actual heist. In fact, 
it's not even you don't even have to understand what's going on or because or why it's happening or anything to enjoy it um sure. yeah and and again the toner is a little bit more defensible because it's actually showing us a factual thing that we might have missed but the emotional cue is what i don't understand like oh yeah yeah especially since i'm still questioning what what exactly lester is feeling like, I remember him beating his wife to death. It happened last fucking episode. You showed previously on Fargo just before I watched this. You're going, I mean, now you're going to do this again? It just, I, it kind of drove me crazy. I hope sure. they they get over that. Um, Pam G said, just watched the episode and loved it. I believe the flashbacks may not be intended to reinforce for us. I believe that they are a character's realities. They are having these awful images pop into their heads. Or is it Cohen's magic working on me? Uh, what do you think of that? I don't think that's a defense for the Lauren character because why would he have a flashback about, you know, an intense flashback about the, the bronzer? Do you think that's a legitimate defense <laughs> for Lester? Uh, it might be for Lester. Yeah, that was a pretty traumatic event, whether he loved to do it or hated to do it. So, uh, yeah. either way, yeah, probably so. Uh, he says Mike Jones uh, double dipped on the Rooster Prince and also this. He said, "If you watch the scene where Lauren takes a shit, listen to the dialogue. The guy walks in and says, this is a shithole.' Then he says, "Pack up your shit and blow.' And then finally he says, "Are you hearing me, asswipe? <laughs> Could that guy have set up Lauren any better?" <laughs> awesome. Um, Sunny L said, "Hey guys, I have to say that I'm beginning to really grow fond of this show and also like the movie. I can sit and watch it multiple times." But I also know I have to forget about the movie to truly enjoy this show. What do you think he meant by that? And do you agree, first of all? That he doesn't have to forget about the movie to enjoy the show? He has to show? forget about the movie to enjoy the show. Like, I don't know whether he means oh. he was expecting, like, a, a just a small screen remake of Fargo. Or he's expecting a little bit more Fargo in his Fargo. A little less No Country in his Fargo. Or what? <laughs> uh, well... All I can speak to is what I felt going into it, having seen the movie and and wondering what the show would be. And I kind of felt a little bit of the same where I was like comparing it a little too much to the movie saying, oh, they did they did this so well. And they have a scene that's very similar to it. And it's maybe not quite as good or it's different in a way that I wish it wasn't. But only Uh. because I've seen the movie, not because the show is bad, you know. Yeah, I mean, to me, this feels like a, a, a like a, a spinoff. It feels very much like it's set in the same universe. Oh yeah, it's just a decade past and a slightly different area. And but I mean, it just feels feels the same. Uh, you know, it's like Tales from the Bounty Hunters uh, to go back to a very old <laughs> Star Wars uh, reference. It still felt like Star Wars more so than the fucking prequels. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I can give you a specific instance where it kind of bothered me. When if the episode first started up, I see these two guys who are obviously toughs rolling down the street, and I'm thinking Steve Buscemi and, you know, what's his name from Armageddon and every other movie on the planet. Right. Uh, Big Lebowski. Uh, I'm thinking those two guys, and when they turn out to be very different characters, uh, but yet still hitmen, very obviously, it kind of threw me off. And I didn't know mm. what to expect. So that's one instance where I think the, having seen the movie was a disadvantage in enjoying the show here. I, I did dig why we're on that because I almost forgot about this. I did dig the the drumming soundtrack 
That, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I thought that was a really cool mix-up with the standard kind of forlorn Fargo music. Uh, moving on to this email, he says, I love how there seems to be always something going on in the background, like the kid playing with the gun during the reception after funeral, or the maintenance guy <laughs> scraping off old Vern Thurman's name off the door. I had to look mm-hmm. that guy's name up. He was so seriously forgettable, but I think that was the point. There's also a little mix of the old or the No Country for Old Men tone going on, which I love. All great TV in my opinion, but I also have to agree with Jim that the, coat, the true coat scene in Fargo is hilarious. I said it was sad. You said it's hilarious. It's now Jim <laughs> 2, Aaron 1. So Okay. Someone will write in next week and defend you, I'm sure. <laughs> Graham H. says, two great episodes in a row. This is probably one of my top fav- five favorite shows already. Lauren Malvo mm-hmm. is certainly the best character on the show right now. He gives zero shits, but will drop one right in front of you. <laughs> anyway, I haven't seen the movie Fargo, and I'm not sure if I should or not. Will it affect my enjoyment of the show? Will I constantly be comparing the show to the film, or will it help me appreciate the show more? Yes, you will be constantly comparing. Uh, and to the point where, like, I think Phil from from the uh, one of the Natterborn from the Nattercast was asking this uh, before the show started, and I commented, "If you've made it this far as a Fargo virgin, finish out the series, yeah. Then go watch the movie and compare and contrast. I think you can do it. You can either see Fargo the movie and then watch the television show, or you can watch the television show and then see Fargo the movie. I almost feel like watch seeing Fargo in the middle of the Fargo television show would somehow." fuck it up <laughs> yeah that seems very awkward i mean it might be an interesting experience uh do it and report back graham but we need to control we need someone that's going we need someone who's going to do the opposite so we can see what exactly how that impacted your enjoyment <laughs> of either one uh that's all the feedback we got man should i kick okay. it to a little bit of a uh, pimping yeah just a little bit and then we'll we'll take it out so if you like our Fargo cast, check out baldmove.com. We've got a bunch of other television. Right now we're covering Mad Men and Game of Thrones and Fargo. Uh, but we are supported in, uh, almost entirely by our listeners' support. I said support one too many times, but we're just going to roll with it. <laughs> uh, two ways you can do that with our Amazon link at amazon.baldmove.com. If you go there to get to Amazon, we get a tiny cut off anything you buy on your next session. And that helps out a tremendous amount. You could also go to subbable.com slash bald move, S-U-B-B-A-B-L-E.com slash bald move. It's a voluntary subscription site where you can decide how much money to give us, uh, whether we've sang for our supper appropriately, and also bank that money to redeem for cool uh, listener perks. So check out the pitch there. Um, please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, we depend so much on that to grow our show and to grow our audience. And every one of your ratings, reviews, and subscriptions helps us rise in the ranks of popularity and get those, capture those ears. And if last but not least, if you can't do any of those things, please tell a friend, send them to bald moves way. We'll know what to do with them. Uh, if you want to give us feedback, do so at Fargo at baldmove.com. Usually we have way too much feedback, but when we start a new show, it's a unique opportunity uh, to get your voice heard because well, I got a, uh, bunch, a bunch of mail this week, but it was all addressed to Duluth. So oh I yeah, not that, to open it. That that's that was a problem, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so you know, send it to Jim and Aaron, not to Duluth, and uh, we'll get it next time. And you can follow Jim on Twitter at Bald Move and on Facebook.com/slash Bald Move is where I hold things down. That's all we got until next week. You got anything else, Jim? Nope, that's it. Thanks everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. Bye-bye. <laughs>